0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast, with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: For the first time ever since we have been conducting this podcast, we are on location. We're not in studio. We're not at home recording these remotely the way we were much of 2020. We are in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I'm joined by two guests, and I'll introduce each of those folks here in a minute. But uh, the conversation that we're going to have here today is, is a really important one, uh, and more specifically, what's important are the decisions that are being made and that we're going to be talking about. Arkansas Game and Fish Commission are, is making some decisions uh, about the management of their green tree reservoirs. These decisions are, are vital uh, for the future of waterfowl, waterfowl habitat, and waterfowl hunting in the state of Arkansas. And a strong case can be made that these decisions are really important and have implications well beyond the boundaries of the state of Arkansas. A lot of the folks that are listening to this, I think, have probably heard about some of these decisions. Uh, some of you may not have, but hopefully you will. You'll learn a few things. You'll uh, Hopefully some of the questions that you might have will be answered. So we're excited for the opportunity to be here today and to answer, have some of these questions answered. So with me today uh, as guest are Luke Naylor, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission's Waterfowl Program Coordinator. Did I get the title right? That's correct. And then Jake Spears, a Ducks Unlimited regional biologist here in Arkansas. Jake, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I want to start with with a couple of introductions for each of you. Luke, you've been on the podcast a couple of times before, uh, giving some habitat condition updates, migration condition updates here in Arkansas. But for those that may not have heard those and those previous episodes, give us a brief introduction on your personal and professional background.
3: Yeah, Mike, so I've been uh been in this position actually just over fifteen years now. So a long, a long time here and uh um, actually a, a record record amount of time for a person in this position actually. Uh that's probably a whole nother show. But yeah, I grew up um, you know, passionate about wildlife and waterfowl in uh south central Kansas actually and Attended uh, Kansas State University Wildlife and Fisheries degrees and then uh, spent some time, spent a summer up north working for Delta Waterfowl, as, as you know, back in the late 90s on some research there at Delta Marsh, and, uh, which took me out to California for graduate school and some work on uh, all the waterfowl and wetland issues out in California for a half dozen years or so and been here since.
1: Thank you, Luke. And so then Jake, uh, you are, I think relatively new to ducks unlimited. So give us some, give us some of your, your personal and professional background.
2: Sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in South Carolina, uh, did my undergrad at Clemson university in wildlife and fisheries biology. Um, but I've been hunting and fishing down in Louisiana and Arkansas since I was a little kid. Um, and that's kind of where I fell in love with the Delta region, uh, just seeing all the ducks and geese flying around and just got fascinated by it. So, so I knew I wanted to work with waterfowl, uh, make a career out of it. So I knew after getting my undergraduate degree at Clemson, I needed to go and get my master's. So after that, I came down to the University of Arkansas at Monticello and studied under Dr. Doug Osborne. And I got my master's degree from there two years ago and got hired by Ducks Unlimited right after that.
1: And so you're a regional biologist here in Arkansas, do you, uh, this is kind of, I'm, I'm kind of curious here, you and I have not interacted a whole lot uh, yet, so it's a pleasure to meet you and thanks for, for being here with us. Do you, you cover more than Arkansas, do you, what, what what region do you cover for Ducks Unlimited?
2: Well, my actual title is just biologist for Arkansas, I'm not technically a regional biologist, so most of my work is, uh, I pretty much cover all of the private lands outreach for the state of Arkansas, meeting with landowners, writing up management plans for them and helping them improve their their habitat their property for waterfowl um, and then also assist with some of the public lands work we've been doing with game and fish um, helping writing some of the grants to assist with their green tree reservoir restorations and things like that and every now and then i'll reach out a little bit into mississippi and tennessee but the bulk of my work is restricted to arkansas
1: well thanks for that jake uh, let's let's kind of move on into into the topic that we want to discuss here today luke you've been on uh, you've been on the front lines of this for a number of years here it's it's a really important issue as I introduced here at the outset. And and I, I guess what I'll say is that when we look across North America at some of the most iconic waterfowl Regions, Waterfowl habitats. You know, you can talk about the California Central Valley. You can talk about the prairie pothole region if we want to throw breeding habitats in into this conversation. Great Lakes coastal marshes, the eastern shore of, of Maryland and, and some of the other coastal waters there on the east coast. You come down to the Gulf of Mexico and the coastal marshes of Louisiana and Texas. Those are all some really iconic areas, really continentally important areas. Then, of course, the other one that we have to add to that list is the Mississippi alluvial valley. Valley, the, historic, the historic floodplain of the Mississippi, lower portion of the Mississippi River. Within that Mississippi alluvial valley, we come to Arkansas. The flooded timber of Arkansas, its importance to mallards, its importance to waterfowl hunters is right up there at the top. There's probably not a... It's hard to put any of these other areas above that, above timber hunting for mallards in Arkansas. Uh, when it comes right down to it, so you know this is—it's important for for so many reasons. These are some very difficult decisions that have been that have been made and are starting to be implemented. and And so I know you've been talking about these issues for quite a while, and so we wanted to use this as an opportunity to further um, share the message and, and answer some of these questions. I know a lot of the decisions are actually being implemented this year. People are going to start seeing some changes, and we want to help people understand why these changes are being made and what kind, What it might mean for, for waterfowl habitats and their hunting experiences. So I guess to start with, Luke, recognizing that our audience here covers really all of North America, and we even have some people that listen to this that are overseas somewhere, worldwide audience. Um, give people... Sort of the historical view of bottomland hardwoods in the Arkansas Delta and how those changed over the past century why are they so important to waterfowl uh, and then we'll get into some of the other aspects green tree reservoirs and how their management differs from kind of historical water cycles but let's uh let us just kind of start big picture for people that may not be familiar
3: history of bottomland hardwoods here in in the Arkansas Delta yeah so we've we, we've got a worldwide audience uh, at our green tree reservoirs <laughs> hundreds <laughs> Arkansas bottom and hardwood forests for uh, for ducks as well so yeah so you know you go back in in history and you look at an area that uh, a colleague of ours wisely said uh, you know mallard kind of transitions from a prairie to forest adapted duck about St. Louis historically that would have been the case we think um that whole uh, Mississippi Missouri River confluence Ohio River coming from the east all that stuff just truly funnels down right here where we sit in the Mississippi alluvial valley on out to the coastal wetlands of course and that that area we we think was almost entirely forested wetlands 200 years ago and yeah that that varied you had storm events some kind of disturbance that would create a or tornado swath a uh, beaver pond beavers would dam out areas and, and and kill out areas of forest that would then go through a succession process back to existing bottom and hardwood forest again so yeah there's variability within that but we generally think about most of the delta uh, a couple of exceptions like the grand prairie of arkansas which was prairie uh, some places like that 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 uh, were exceptions but generally a vast forested wetland that had Seasonal overbank flooding not uh, predictable in the sense that it was common, but it was unpredictable in the the timing and the duration of that flooding historically uh, well before any infrastructure in place, flood control projects and largely um, forest clearing habitat changes you know as a, as a person who grew up in the prairies and I always got this this heart tied back to the prairies um I still have to check myself a lot that coming from that landscape where most of the habitat loss, habitat conversion is is well over 100-plus years old. And you come here and, and forested wetlands in the Mississippi-Alluvial Valley are, are largely um, something that's changed in the last 70 to 80 years now, I would say, um, you know, mid-1900s, uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s maybe. Um, so it's a fairly recent loss from, we think about Arkansas having, uh, 20, 25 million acres of this bottom and hardwood forest throughout the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, now down to a low just in the single digit millions, you know, three, four, five million acres of these bottom and hardwood forests. And now we've actually seen it turn around a little bit with the Wetland Reserve Program, bringing uh, 300 and some thousand plus, I think, acres, uh, which is mostly reforested bottom and hardwood forests. Um, but, but yeah, this massive loss of habitat. Over the years, and the existing habitat continues to be—it um, it exists as bottomland bottom hardwood forest, but it exists in a highly altered landscape. And generally, when we're talking about that, we're talking about hydrologically altered landscape.
1: For those that that may not be familiar, kind of with with waterfowl use of these of these bottomland hardwoods why are they so important? What are, what are ducks getting from them? I mean, we're, we're talking about forest and, but then once they flood, like what's the, what's the importance of them?
3: Yeah. Lots of different values we think. Uh, so uh, they're just a different habitat in the sense that, that, you know, most of the things that are going to, that are going to harass or eat a duck on the wintering grounds probably come from the air. Most of the time people think about, you know, raccoons and other critters or coyotes or, or the, typical predators that get blamed for most things. But when you're living in the water, uh, you're kind of dealing with aerial predators. So there's escape from that there is one kind of maybe minor role, more minor role. But but it's really the, the food resources available there. So we think historically about a diverse forest ecosystem that had a wide array of uh, resources from acorns, from mass-producing red oaks. During that that process of succession, you would surely get some early successional moist soil plants that would come in into uh, naturally created openings. Uh, lots, just kind of grassy um, habitats like that. A lot of it, we think, uh, a big value in forested wetlands is invertebrates. So this huge resource that's critically important, particularly later in the wintering period, as birds are, are restocking protein resources. We know they're doing that all the time, but it, but it's a uh, Pretty big deal, uh, late January, February, let's say, to really access those acorns, which are a really nice, diverse morsel. Uh, then you have invertebrates that are coming on the scene when ducks need them. And, you know, lo and behold, those are also the times when these places historically had the most widespread flooding. So that healthy ecosystem has a continual leaf litter process and all the good stuff that happens in a, in decaying leaf litter within a flooded forest. And, and, and so we talk about socially um, with ducks kind of finding isolation in these places as well. So as they come down here, they typically arrive when these areas would historically have flooded. A lot of mallards are paired up or will be soon after. They find some isolation from other harassing drakes at the time. Um, just that kind of feeling that they can be isolated from other ducks and, and kind of not have to worry about, um, you know, that, that, that pair bond maintenance quite as much maybe in that habitat.
1: Along the way... As we were seeing, yeah, and I guess as we were seeing the conversion of some of these bottomland hardwoods, but people were taking advantage of the of the waterfowl resources. They saw them use these bottomland hardwoods, these flooded flooded um, forest lands uh, as they flooded naturally during the winter. But then somewhere along the way, something happened, and people began to realize that hey, we can we can manage these a bit more actively. That's where we, uh, and I don't really know. You 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 can tell us this where where and when exactly did the term green tree reservoir come into play? But green tree reservoirs are managed uh, flooded timber, right? And so the the story behind how that emerged, how people realized what would happen when you managed water levels deliberately in some of these in an impounded area that contained uh, these bottomland hardwoods, was pretty interesting. I didn't realize it whenever I first heard it, heard that story. So Tell us about the emergence of green tree reservoirs. Um, it wasn't the they they didn't emerge for the
3: benefit of ducks, did they? We don't think at least initially. Now the transition might have been fairly quick. <laughs> Probably cuz <'cause, Well, laughs> <'cause laughs> duck hunters are pretty observant yeah. fellas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like human nature, we crave consistency, right? So um so the, the, the notion goes that, that it was uh, Tyndall's Reservoir back in the Grand Prairie of Arkansas near Stuttgart in the 1930s maybe that the, the first farmer actually dammed up, uh, levied around uh, existing bottom and hardwood forest and just flooded it so he would have a reservoir to irrigate his crops in the summer.
1: He kept water on it all year.
3: And then kept water on it all year and especially throughout the summer, right, because he wanted to use that water as a source of irrigation water for his rice crop and rice
1: was by that time rice was starting to take hold here in arkansas and yeah
3: that's right and maybe not quite as much with drilling wells to use aquifer water at that point so we're kind of in a transition phase the stories go uh folks are trying to be wise and and realize these summer months are kind of tough on a rice crop sometimes without supplemental irrigation you know a practice now that we're Lots of partners are, are promoting on the landscape using surface water irrigation to to grow rice. But yeah, you flood up this bottomland hardwood forest artificially for a few years, and all of a sudden, wow, okay, these ducks used to get in this place every few years when it flooded. You know, this guy levied this place up and flooded it, and he's got ducks in there every year. Predictably, and predictably, <laughs> you knew when it was going to happen. Uh, we can presume, Mister. Mr. Tyndall had a lot of control of of when the water was there and and the ducks responded. So I, I got to figure, knowing duck hunters, they haven't changed a lot in hundred years. I, I don't figure so they they probably recognized that really quickly and realized, okay, we can we can use this for rice agriculture, and we also have a phenomenal place where we can predictably hunt ducks in the winter. And initially, even even some forest researchers in some of the early works. There might even be a benefit to trees for doing this. But we kind of think now it maybe was an initial response of if anything that gets more irrigation than what it used to have, it probably likes it for a little while, grows a little bit better, maybe produces more acorns. As we'll talk about, we've, we've kind of learned over many years that that didn't work out quite so well. Uh, but it's kind of thought that at that point, it led that transition to people then purposely building these reservoirs to attract ducks consistently in the winter for hunting.
1: So, Luke, along the way, as people began to observe, the, as they began to you kind know, of realize the value that these intentionally managed, kind of impounded uh, green tree reservoirs, as, as we began to realize the value that they provided to wintering waterfowl in the state of Arkansas and then waterfowl hunters, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission began to. I don't exactly know how the acquisition occurred, but basically, they became an increasingly important part of the state's managed lands for providing habitat for waterfowl and winter. Right. So, how did that develop, and how many how many GTRs or how many different management areas do we have now in the state that that have uh, that have green tree reservoirs on them? If you don't have the exact number, that's fine. But just as an as a component, how important are they in what the state does now and has become over the years? In managing and providing habitat for wintering waterfowl.
3: Yeah, so there's kind of a balancing act there, I think, on how that's described. Um, so take a real quick step back. I think, you know, initially, so folks see that this works, consistently has ducks on on an area, and that's happening at a similar time to where forest loss is accelerating. So we have to, I think, put ourselves in the shoes of those folks on the landscape at the time, seeing rapid habitat conversion, and seeing ducks to respond to this new resource, new management technique on the landscape. So initially it's like, wow, this is really something that they didn't needs to happen to, to sustain ducks in Arkansas. So it was initially for a long, long time. I mean, it was very well-meaning. This is what needs to happen to help uh, sustain this resource. So 1937, of course, Pittman-Robertson Act comes along. States have resources available to begin acquisition of lands. This all happened in similar timing. And and then Biomeda becomes the first acquisition for Arkansas Game and Fish Commission using Pittman- Robertson dollars. And so that comes on the scene. It's now it's our first and still one of our largest WMAs at over 30,000 acres that has about, we can debate the the specifics, 16 to 18,000 acres that we think are actually within a GTR management pool that that our infrastructure, directly impacts. And I'll come back to that directly versus indirectly on the impacts. But in and, and all total, we maybe 50 to 60,000 acres of GTRs on about maybe 16, 17, 18 WMAs. And the reason you might say, well, why don't you know the exact number? You know, well, we're continually kind of evolving the way we think about these areas. And, you know, something that we may have just called a GTR for 30 or 40 years. Like, well, we're, we've kind of moved away from that management maybe in some places or maybe we've consolidated gtrs in other places so i try not to get too hung up when people say well exactly how many gtrs exactly how many acres we're learning with new new information about elevation contours uh, within these gtrs and our old assumptions about how many acres were influenced by our infrastructure they're changing we're challenging those assumptions with with new data Um, nobody was wrong the first time, it's just we got new information that tells us we may be impacting more or or fewer um, acres. So fifty to 60,000 acres, and I always want to balance that. That's a huge number. That's the biggest number, I'm confident, of any resource management agency or private individual in the world of managing that habitat type. We still have to keep in perspective, though, uh, particularly, particularly when we start talking about any potential negative impacts of the changing of the availability of those acres because of altered water management, for example, we got to talk about how that's still a fairly small percentage of overall acres potentially available to waterfowl. And so it's critically important while at the same time, it's it's not at such a level that if something changes on one of those GTRs or on a WMA, we're at risk of of compromising um waterfowl migrations at a larger scale uh i I don't think so i know we'll dive more into the details on that
1: and that's green tree reservoirs are not the only habitat type that arkansas game and fish is is managing
3: for right no we have uh many more acres of unmanaged bottom and hardwood forest than we do gtrs and then if you bring in our partners in the private sector a lot of those many of those are in GTRs. then you add in our partners in the National Wildlife Refuge System that have many times the numbers of acres of bottom and hardwood forest habitat almost entirely unimpounded uh, within the Cache River and the White River National Wildlife Refuge Systems in Arkansas. So you add all that stuff up.
1: But then other seasonal wetlands as well, like moist soil management. Yeah. Y'all do some of that as well. That's uh, correct. You have, uh, maybe I know you. the state is involved in some uh, kind of rice program now, right?
3: Exactly. So we've got other
1: things as well. So this, unlike Green Tree Reservoirs, even managed or unmanaged are not the only arrow in the quiver of AGFC, right?
3: Correct. We manage about 10,000 acres of of moist soil impoundments very actively every year. Uh, We've grown this program, working on providing habitat resources on rice fields. Uh, 4,000 acres seems small, um, but there's a lot of private landowners not in that program doing work on rice. And, And we're all doing this um, our moist soil units, these rice fields, we're working with uh, the GTRs. They're all kind of in this, in these complexes. We like to talk about in habitat management. So we're trying to make sure that collectively we have the resources in these complex, um, kind of these core areas. And they're really anchored by our GTRs, our Barlowman hardwood forests. But there's other stuff around to kind of fill the gap during different. Times of the year or when we need to do different management on one acre versus the other acre.
1: Jake, you grew up in South Carolina, so you've been here. You've, you actually you went to graduate school here at University of Arkansas Monticello, so you've been around this landscape for a number of years now. You had many opportunities to get out, hunt, visit these GTRs. What's been your your impression? The memory. What memories have you developed from them? How do you see them now?
2: Well, it just so happened that I came to school down here about the time the weather got really warm and it was some of the worst duck seasons that a lot another, of people another could person remember. to blame
3: <laughs> another just file the complaint but with that
2: being said we had uh we hunted several WMAs across the state down around Monticello and up towards Stuttgart and now where I live around Jonesboro I've been able to hunt up there some and so I've hunted four or five different WMAs across the state in these green tree reservoirs and overall it's 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 very unique. There's not much like it anywhere else. And when the hunting is good and the ducks are there, it's probably the coolest thing you could ever do when you're duck hunting. So I have no complaints at all.
1: That's good. I'm glad you've been able to get out and enjoy that resource here since you've you've been here. Uh, And we're going to talk with you here in a bit more detail a little bit later on about Ducks Unlimited's role and some of the decisions, some of the activities that that AGFC is is doing or wanting to do on some of these GTRs as we kind of get into this conversation. And so let's talk about that a little bit here, Luke, in terms of as we've had Green Tree Reservoirs, managed Green Tree Reservoirs since the 30s now, and you alluded early on that we were learning, all along the way, we were learning about how to how to best manage these for, for the production of waterfowl food values, but also for their sustainability. I remember being at school in Mississippi State in the early 90s, and even at, at that time, we were still asking these questions. What are the best management practices for green tree reservoirs? There was beginning to be some thought, some evidence that, yes, you can flood these things too often. Uh, and that probably developed pretty early, right? That recognition that if you flood, keep those things flooded throughout the summer, multiple years in a row, those trees are going to die. I think that the story went that original GTR probably went... went uh, it didn't it, last, it, it didn't very, last long. very long. Now, so people began to, began to realize there are some limits on when we can put this water on there. And and how long we can keep it on and how deep it can be. And that had been the focus of a lot of the science, a lot of the research here over the years. And so talk about that a little bit in terms of the the importance of the importance of all of that research. And you know, I guess the question would be, why did it take why did it take so long? Well, and I guess we're still learning. Yes, we're still we're still yes. learning, right? But but talk about that, and I guess the the importance of that scientific research as we've tried to pursue it over the years, and now where we are, and how we have learned about some of the declining health of of some of the GTRs.
3: I think it's a long it's a problem that takes a long time to develop, which means it takes a long time to detect. And you're talking about a long-lived species, right? It's, it's a lot easier to do work. My a lot of my background is in moist soil management, and you know, if there's year-over-year effects there, of course, but you can also kind of change things in a, in a year or two period fairly effectively in some cases, and, I, and I'd identify issues and fix them. And in forested areas, it just takes, a, in a lot of cases, it just took a long time for people to have an awareness, um, see that these major changes are happening, and then develop rigorous enough studies to actually document causal factors. So you're you know it it can be caused by lots of different issues um you know any habitat change we see we got to be careful to make sure that we know we're we're documenting the the most likely cause of a decline and it and it really seems it it's really does kind of go back to the that 90s era you talked about where it was started to become more common a more common conversation in wildlife managers uh dialogue i guess that that wow, there's an issue out there. And you started to see a few people doing research on it, the folks at at Missouri with with Fredrickson and Heitmeyer up there and Sammy King in Louisiana starting to do some research. So they they started to document issues. Ted Shank's conservation area in Missouri was one of the first test cases way back when that, wow, there's a problem here, and here's how we think we can change it. So it just just takes time. And as we go through this whole process, we always try to be really, really careful to go back and say, hey, look, we're we're changing and we're questioning a lot of the decisions people made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even the 2000s. Uh, but that's not a criticism. It's kind of like, look, we just know more now, and and we need to make different decisions now. Uh, when this process started, you know, I really started diving into it with our wetlands biologist in, in 2014. And it was a chance for me, um, I'll call it an opportunity to go back and treat this like some sort of research project and kind of did a, a sort of a literature review on bottom and hardwood forests and GTR management. And it became clear that only recently had solid evidence been available in the published literature to say, okay, yeah, this is these are the issues. We started doing some investigations on our own areas to look at forest health and, and forest composition, species composition, did that a few times over the years uh, most recently a, a big effort in 2014 clearly had evidence that there's been changes in forest composition and changes in forest health, generally declining forest health, and especially in a few key species. That was the impetus to to kind of keep pushing forward starting in 2014 through 15 through now and through when, when Jake arrived and, and realized everything had already gone, gone South apparently. So that, 2017 you know we started we made our first decision to to change water management on GTRs so it's just been kind of a building um continual progression from there so yeah it took a while to just build the information uh this is no small change we're talking about so we wanted to be very confident we had the necessary facts at hand to make an educated management recommendation
1: so why is it like we talked about in the early 90s people were beginning to question beginning to try to f- find answers to what's the best way to manage the timing the depth and the dura- and the duration of water on these GTRs because people were starting to see uh, starting to see some evidence of decline as you mentioned but the other reality of this is that there's huge public demand for these right and so so that comes into play here pretty quick right whenever oh, and, and you alluded to this by these are big decisions these are really important decisions not just from a forest health perspective but from a public use perspective talk about that uh, the, how difficult how difficult is it whenever you're kind of trying to make these decisions and balance the needs based on some health of the resource demands uh, pub, for for public use and everything else that goes into the what benefits from a given agency decision
3: yeah i think Early on, it's, it's highly likely that folks, a lot of smart folks uh, were observing what was going on They didn't really like the answer yeah. that the management recommendation would need to be. Building the internal and external support to make these hard decisions, I think really was bolstered by having solid data t- to show folks. And, I, you know, I, I found that if you can have that solid data, um, it doesn't always work maybe, in getting the the perfect management decision that, uh, um, you know, if you put a wildlife biologist out with and just had ultimate control to do whatever we thought was best with the science, doesn't always work out, rarely works out that way. But I think we gathered enough information to then build the case internally with our administration, with our commission, externally with the public. We're st- now, this is all an ongoing process. It's not going to stop um, well through my career, I'm sure, what people were seeing and what needed to change was, was not uh, going to be pleasant um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and, so I, and I don't think, I'm confident that folks, so an area manager managing a GTR uh, would not have had the support at the highest levels in our agency to make a resource-based management decision in the 90s. But now we have we've elevated the discussion. We've elevated the issue to where uh, no manager on a single GTR is out there on an island having to do their own thing, get get pressure from different voices, and and be kind of left to to just flounder or or be on their own. Uh, so now we have we've got the highest level support, and we've maintained that for quite a while now. And so I think we feel like we've empowered everyone out there doing the, the actual management uh to be confident in what they're doing and and know that they're not alone in this effort. That that's a big deal uh, to get to get to that level. We we recently talked about this amongst our commission and you know we we get a new commissioner once per year for a seven year term. And I've just mentioned we we started this work in twenty fourteen. So now we've gone essentially a full commission appointment cycle to where we sit right now and we have maintained strong support administratively throughout this entire process. So the public use side, and and I'm sure you'll have these conversations with the director as, as, as well, but the public use side, I want to be really, really clear that that is, that is going right alongside with our resource-based decisions. It's just that we have to make different decisions now. Uh, we, we are not forgetting about the public user. We know that's critically important, always has been. Um, I hunt these areas. These, these are where I go duck hunting. And, and so I'm right there with the public land hunter. Um, but it, it's come to a point now where the evidence is so strong. There really is not an alternative decision. If you really dig down into it, we're, we're, you could almost say we're left with no choice if we want this habitat to exist in the long term.
1: I think that's, the, that's probably the choice you're left with is do we manage for today or do we manage for perpetuity?
3: That's precisely the choice, and we've I've we've talked about this a lot with the public. Is that we essentially had, um, like like in lots of management actions that are done. It's 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 very important to set objectives, right, and figure out okay why are we doing this? And we, me included, predecessors um, hadn't clearly stated okay what is our objective for GTR management, and so that that leaves you in making an annual decision to flood up at a certain time. And that's typically going to be, we're going to do it the way we did it last year. Pretty soon you turn around 40 or 50 years later and like, man, okay, we've done that pretty much every year for 40, or 50 years. Now what? And so it, it took a, a wholesale decision to say, okay, to stay at our objectives and our and our objectives for this effort for these habitats is long-term sustainability of the habitat and long-term provision of waterfowl hunting opportunity. Very important to say that this is a long-term. So the time horizon has shifted Having water on every spot by opening day of duck season is not the objective anymore. It's having these habitats and this hunting opportunity in the long term, uh, which, which changes the whole, whole perspective. You're
1: still managing for the resource user, it's just the time frame for that management is the, the
3: time perspective is different. Yeah, the horizon has changed.
0: You and your dog are a team.
1: So the three of us are sitting here talking about this, Green Tree Reservoir Management, the issues that have emerged over the years and some of the we're beginning to allude to some of the changes that are going to be happening. What I probably haven't done a great job of here, and it's because we know this issue well, probably haven't done a great job kind of laying out exactly what the issue is. Uh, we've talked about it here. and when You got right to it just a minute ago, Luke, where you said we we were putting the water on pretty much the same time every year we became consistent resource users like consistency you said that earlier we don't like variability we just we just don't we don't we like for our we like for things to be consistent and what did we begin to see um, specifically we've kind of talked about decline in the health of these green tree reservoirs but specifically what are we talking about in terms of um, species composition? How has it changed? What are we seeing in terms of regeneration? How has this constancy of water levels and water levels that really stress the trees to a point beyond what's healthy form, what are the changes that it has made to the
3: forest communities in these GTRs? Yeah, so we're dealing with a forest community that was diverse and adapted to uh, widely variable depth duration and timing of flooding. And different species have different flooding tolerances and different species have different uh resource production for ducks. And that's a real simple one. And, and we get plenty of arguments about this, trust me, <laughs> but about acorns and their, their, uh, whether, well, right off the top, whether ducks eat them or not. So I've been told they a do. lot that they, 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 d- they do eat them, but that is not a, um, there are some challenges to that notion. I'll just put it that way. Um, but, but there are certain species red oak species in these communities we're talking about willow oak uh, commonly referred to as a pin oak down here not a true pin oak but but a willow oak uh, and a nut all oak cherry bark water oak all produce small acorns that are easily easily consumed by a mallard or a wood duck let's say thin, so thin-shelled, thin shelled thin uh, shelled cap drops off fairly soon we think and we're talking about a a bird here, right, that has one way to ingest resources. That's with their bill. They pick it up. They swallow it. So, tie your hand behind your back and try to eat something and, you know, gape limitation in the fisheries world, you know, how small, how large of an item can fit through the bill becomes really important. And so, it just so happens that those red oak species also have lower water tolerance. So, they can only exist in short-duration variable flooding. In contrast, we have a white oak group species, the overcup oak. Also, it's a species that belongs in this ecosystem, has always existed here, but it's highly water tolerant relative to to these red oaks, at least, and produces a, an acorn that's largely large, not ingestible by a waterfowl, you know, maybe... 10 to 20% of them by February when the cap is off and they've softened a little bit, um, they, can, they can take advantage of those resources. So we kind of have this dichotomy of species groupings and their water tolerance. And over many, many years of relatively early, so we pre-dormancy, so if you think about mature trees going dormant, um, sometime when it's full leaf off, let's say, which you know first frost dates in Arkansas or somewhere in mid-November, And so that's typically when we think about nothing's, not much is really going dormant before then in all likelihood. Um, And then long duration flooding, which extends into the growing season in the spring as well. Um, You keep doing that for for many, many years. You end up with a scenario where we used to, on many of these GTRs, we used to close water control structures either October 1st or October 15th for decades. And just mentioned, you know, maybe mid-November, These trees are starting to go dormant, mature trees. And so there's a serious mismatch there of at least an additional month of flooding, we think. And that's not to say that October 15th these areas go from zero to full pool immediately. Uh, But we we also hear plenty of stories of August and September flooding, where it used to be very common for rice runoff water. Farmers would drain rice fields, lots of water moving down the ditches. All these WMAs are at the bottom of the system and private landowners are are guilty of this as well boy that's free water we got to capitalize on that so you have all these even when the management plan said october 15th uh, wink and a nod there's some water in there in august and september because there's rice runoff water a lot of that going on if you talk to some of the folks old timers look at old records so we end up with a scenario where we have provided a hydro period essentially the time when these trees are flooded that highly benefits Water-tolerant species like overcup oak, It damages species red oaks like willow oak and nut all oak. So what we see is declining forest health, as indicated uh, by some some the tree tells us what's going on. The tips die back, small branches die back, large branches start dying back. You have basal swellings with enlarging of the trunk at, at kind of at the the natural wa- at the water line, artificial water line. You have bark damage; the the bark splits. They get diseases. It's kind of this negative feedback loop once it starts happening. And you see that happening in the red oaks. They generally fall out of the system quicker because of this mortality. Adding water to the system also does not allow those red oaks to have successful regeneration. So you end up with a scenario where you might have a willow oak produce acorns. You have seedlings come up that are 8 to 12 inches tall in October nowhere near going dormant, still trying to gain as much resources as they can, then boom, they're over top with water for four months. And so you just never have a, a another year class of young trees. And so fast forward 50 years of that, you end up with a forest that the mature trees are becoming more dominated by overcup oak and the regeneration, so we're talking five to 30-year-old to trees are also dominated by overcup oak and even a lot of water-tolerant non-oak species, uh, like some elms, some some hickories, some different species, green ash, coming into these forests. So, but, but to the layperson going out in winter, all leaf off, you go out to these areas, and for 40 years, there's been trees to hunt. There's been trees to stand next to. Despite all these changes in species composition, there's still a tree to stand next to and hunt. So it's a gradual shift, that's tough to detect. Best time to detect it is to go out in June, July, and August when nobody wants to be walking around in a Bottle of Man hardwood forest. Yeah. But that's the time when people need to go look at it and really see the impacts.
1: I've been on at least one um, one field trip out to Biomeda with you and and some other agency staff. We had a uh, to see some of these issues, and one of the things that would, was pointed out, and I, it's some terminology that you even use in some of the communication pieces around around this issue one of the signs of a declining of uh, declining tree health that is highly visible even during winter are these i think you call them leaners, leaners right? yeah yeah and and i noticed that it's, it's very obvious right and so that when you see that i mean that to me instinctively speaks to or suggests something about the root and in the integrity of the root system in that yeah. particular tree. It's not good. It's not, it's it's not, not good. Not, They're not supposed yeah. to lean. They're not leaning to get, you know, in, in the direction of the sun, right? Because it's, right. <laughs> it's yeah, not it's, one of those deals. Um, so hunters can can see some of these signs if they know what to look for,
3: right? They can. And and so that results, those leaner trees, yeah, that indication that the, the root system, they have a shallow, these red oaks are shallow rooted, um, no tap root. So they're, they're susceptible to wind throw, we call it, when they just blow over in a windstorm. That always happened in these systems. I, I don't want to pretend that that never happened. But how common that is now, it, you know, it's increased a lot. So those trees that are leaners are soon going to be the ones that are going to be wind throw. They're going to be on the ground. So a horizontal tree in these areas should be pretty obvious. Um, unfortunately, places like Biomeda or there's more and more of those windthrow trees. And, and it seemed like at a level greater than what we might call back, kind of like background natural windthrow. Um, wide expanses of, of many, many windthrown trees from those shallow roots and being starting out as leaners. You can look up, you're standing around a tree and, and look up and see these, um, see the tip die back to some degree. You can see the fine branches at the end of a willow oak be not there. And those should, those should still be visible in the winter. You can see larger branches we talk about is kind of a next phase when it's, you know, maybe four to eight inch branches are starting to break off in the crown of the tree. Um, epicorpic, epicormic, excuse me, branching is another one that you could see in the winter. Um, a tree that's in a closed canopy should not have a lot of lateral branches so small branches coming off the trunk off the trunk that come down almost to where you can reach and probably where people are hanging their strap to hang their gun or or their ducks on or their or their blind bag out there there shouldn't be you should have to use a hook in most of these places around a tree if the tree is healthy healthy. so but you see those those lateral branches generally kind of small lateral branches along a lot of the trunk of the tree that is also a sign of water stress that hunters can see in the winter um generally thinning forest overall, um, is, is not what we're looking for. Um, so it's with lots of trees dying out, we can, we're going to talk about, yeah, thinning to get light on the ground, sunlight on the ground to regenerate trees is, is very critical. Uh, but, but this kind of rapid fallout of trees, um, and even places like Henry Gate, Hurricane Lake, what we've seen the last few years is where you, you go out and it's up to, a good 1,000 acres now probably, unfortunately, that these are trees that greened up in a spring. And then by that late summer, they were brown, called brownout. So they green up. You go out there in June, like, wow, this is, this is a good-looking forest. By August, the tree leaves are all brown, and that tree is dead. Like, it's a sudden mortality from persistent water stress. And, yeah, it's it's pretty major. They are are really good at telling us what's going on if yeah. we will just – take time to pay attention.
1: Luke and Jake, this is probably a good place to wrap up. We have a lot of information to cover. That's, this is, as I said at the outset, a really, really important conversation, really important decisions for a lot of reasons. So I want to make sure we kind of give it good, good coverage here. So we're going to wrap up this particular episode and have you guys back to, uh, to continue on, get into the restoration plan. We're kind of at that point where we've diagnosed the issue now let's talk about the recovery restoration plan that Arkansas Game and Fish and others are kind of putting into place here. So thank you guys for joining us, and we'll welcome you back here on the next next episode. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Mike.
1: A special thanks to our guests on today's episode, Luke Naylor and Jake Spears. We appreciate them sharing their time and expertise. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does editing the podcast and getting them out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your support of the podcast, and we thank you for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.